Welcome to episode one of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Have you ever had your worldview turned upside down? It's a bit unsettling, isn't it? Well, when I arrived in Swaziland, Africa in 2004 on a month-long mission trip, one of the local men who was part of the mission I was entering took my bag with one hand, he grabbed my hand with the other, and started walking me down the road where we would be staying. We were walking about a quarter of a mile, holding hands and talking like an old married couple. And uh, honestly, I was a bit creeped out. But his actions were totally normal for a Saswati in in Swaziland. And in fact, the man was being very welcoming and hospitable. You know, kind of treating me like family or a close friend. And, you know, that took a while for, for me to get adjusted to that culture. Because something that I used to feel was wrong was now viewed as pure. Well, similarly, when we become born again into Jesus' kingdom, it can also feel like he is turning our worldview upside down. However, it's crucial to know that we all enter life with an inverted perspective of reality. And so, Jesus is actually helping to set everything right side up again. Most of us were born into a democracy, and a democracy is extremely different than a kingdom. In a democracy, if we don't like our leaders, we can vote them out of office. If we don't like our laws, we can vote in different laws. In a democracy, the majority usually gets its way. If you're like me, you were born again into the kingdom of God with a democratic mindset. And if that's the case, then like me, you have been pouring new wine into old wineskins. See, because you entered into this kingdom acting like a democracy, like it's democratic, and that's just not the case. We entered into a kingdom, and so we have to treat it like a kingdom. See, all kingdoms have a king. They have a domain. They have laws. They have values and subjects. And the kingdom of God is no different. And yet, because it's from heaven, it is completely different than all the kingdoms of the earth. The kingdom of God has no earthly king. Jesus is its king. And he will never stop being king, and no one has the right to change his laws. The kingdom of God has no geographic borders. It exists through whomever Jesus' spirit has free reign. Excluding the realm of heaven or his eventual millennial millennial, uh, earthly reign, this is King Jesus' domain. Therefore, it's important for us to remember that no one is truly born into the kingdom of God through their parents, right? King Jesus himself said in John chapter three, verse three, truly, truly, 
I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So how does this work? Well, how does somebody get born again? Jesus gave his entire life for us. And if we repent of our sins, of being self-focused, of uh, being the ruler of our own life, and we give our entire lives back to him, give our lives over to his rule, to his reign, ask him to forgive our sins and come to take over our life, well, he will actually give his life back into us through the Holy Spirit, and he will begin to transform us to become like him. We actually become born from above. We're regenerated. We get a new life. We're born again into his kingdom. We become adopted sons and daughters of the king. And when this happens, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, we also get rescued out of the domain of darkness, Satan's kingdom, and transferred or translated into Jesus's kingdom. Now, let's think about the laws. The laws of the kingdom of God are first and foremost the commands of Jesus Christ. Now, many of these are found in King Jesus's inaugural address in Matthew chapter chapters 5 through 7 or Luke chapter 6 would be uh, the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. Now, Jesus' life illustrates the values of the kingdom of God, the way he treated those inside the kingdom, those outside the kingdom, and the things of this world. And the subjects of the kingdom of God are those who have entered into a covenantal relationship with the king, those who love him, obey him, and reflect his nature to the world. This, this is basically the biblical worldview for a Christian. However, over the last 1,700 years or so, there has been much debate amongst Christians as to how one should interpret the laws of the kingdom of God. For example, some Christian leaders teach that Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 5 to love our enemies in no way prohibits us from killing our enemies under the right circumstances. And that's basically the culture that I grew up in as a young Texan and a Southern Baptist. Now, I need you to know that I am so grateful, I'm so grateful that I was able to do my undergraduate work at a Baptist university. You know, it was there that I truly developed a love for the scriptures and a passion to impact the world for Christ. And I'm also thankful for being able to graduate from seminary and for the many practical ministerial lessons I learned there. However, However, though I was taught about a few of the major Gnostic heresies during the first 300 years of Christianity, such as Doceticism, Marcionism, Valentinianism, and Manichaeism, uh, we didn't really cover what the beliefs and the values of the early Christians 
actually were. We, we didn't cover what they actually stood for. In fact, it was basically implied by my professors that real Orthodox Christianity began to take root with the 5th century teachings of St. Augustine, who, interestingly, spent his early years as a Manichaean, a Manichaean um, before converting to Christianity. So, you know, sure, I heard stories of early Christian martyrdom, but I wasn't actually exposed to their writings until I had been working in full-time ministry for about five years. And uh, a friend of mine encouraged me to read a book that was calling into question the American church's relationship with the state, uh, kind of making an analogy to um, the way the church merged with the state, uh, particularly after Constantine and with the reign of Emperor Theodosius in 380 uh, AD, uh, merging with Rome there. Now, Reading that book was quite unsettling, to say the least. And the first quote that grabbed me was from a man I had heard about but never read anything from. And this guy was Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. And um, oh my goodness, what a quote it was. What a quote it was. Uh, This is what I read. And uh, it's kind of a fuller version of it as well, um, giving it to you from the uh, CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. This is in volume one, page 413. This is what Justin writes. It's in a, it's an apologetic work. Okay, so he's writing to the Roman emperor, basically, and saying this is what Christians are like. This is what Christianity is like all over the world. So here we go. He says, we who were filled with war and mutual slaughter and every wickedness have each throughout the whole earth changed our warlike weapons, our swords into plowshares and our spears into implements of tillage. And we cultivate piety, righteousness, philanthropy, faith, and hope which we have from the Father himself through him who was crucified. Now, it is evident that no one can terrify or subdue us who have believed in Jesus all over the world, for it is plain that, though we're beheaded and crucified and thrown to wild beasts and chains and fire, And all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. But in fact, the more such things happen, the more do others and in larger numbers become faithful and worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. For just as if one should cut away the fruit-bearing parts of a vine, it grows up again and yields other branches flourishing and fruitful, even so. The same thing happens with us. So, uh, did you get what he just said? First of all, all followers of Jesus from the beginning of Christendom to the middle of the second century, uh, around 160 when he wrote, all around the known world believed that the Isaiah 
prophecy about the kingdom of God was becoming true in them because of Jesus and because of Jesus inside of them and all over the world, Christians viewed non-resistance as a moral imperative in the same light. They were holding in it in the same light, uh, at the same standard, with the same weight that uh, the Christians were told to view the moral commands from Leviticus um, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 about not committing idolatry, uh, about um, not committing sexual immorality, and about not um, not drinking blood, um, not having any blood um, ingested in them, and not eating food or meat that's been strangled. And so they held this issue of nonviolence to that same degree. And, and they viewed non-resistance and persecution as one of the most effective means of evangelism. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? They didn't have the four spiritual laws, right? I mean, they had creeds, to be sure. But they viewed the most effective manner of evangelism as literally dying by the hands of your enemies, to, which would turn your enemies into believers when they saw your faithful perseverance and patience in the midst of torture for the name of Christ. And why would they view that that way? Well, you know, that's exactly what happened on the cross with Jesus, dying for his enemies and turning enemies into brothers and sisters. Right, And you can remember that actually happened right there. The centurion overseeing Jesus' crucifixion, what did he say? Right as Jesus breathed his last, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Right, Pretty interesting stuff. All Christians throughout the known world, they believed that because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they really could walk as Jesus walked, and love as Jesus loved. They believed that just like Jesus' death brought life to countless people by picking up their crosses, He, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father would continue to do the same thing through them. So even though they were being crucified, burned alive, fed to wild beasts, burned in oil, ripped limb from limb, they saw that horrific persecution. They saw that horrific persecution as a blessing to the world. Now, why would they take such drastic measures, even in the face of such intense persecution? Well, for one, the early Christians, like I said, they were on a kingdom mission, this evangelism aspect. They're on a kingdom mission. They were not on a mission to retire early. They were on mission to reach the world for Christ, by Christ's means, for Christ's ends. And the second reason they went to such drastic measures to reach people is that the early Christians read the New Testament seriously and simply. Simply. Like an intelligent 12-year-old, they didn't have seminaries and classes devoted to a systematic theology that cleverly justified not walking as Jesus walked. No, if Jesus and the apostles taught it and lived it, so did the early 
Christians. In fact, you know, let, let's take a, a moment and, and let's look at some of the writings of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, okay? So let's look a little bit fuller at that Matthew 5, 43-48 passage. Just think about this simply and seriously. Just like how would an intelligent 12-year-old, what would they believe when they heard this for the first time? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same if you greet only your brothers What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And now Paul in Romans 12, verse 17 through 19 and uh, verse 21, he says, speaking to Christians, you guys never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now let's go to Peter, First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. He says to Christians, you have been called for this purpose, for this mission. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And finally, in in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and it says, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we will keep his commandments. And you think about verse 6 in chapter 2 that says, we know that we have come to know him if we walk as Jesus walked. When I read Justin Martyr's testimony for the first time, and you know, I compared his testimony to the simple words of the New Testament, I was, I was stunned. And I felt heartbroken. Like, like I had been lied to and I was living a lie for nearly three decades. It's like 
my pastors and my professors, and this is how I felt at the time. Um, not saying it's necessarily true, just those feelings, this grief-stricken feeling like my pastors and my professors had been carefully crafting a version of the Bible to teach us that fit a particular agenda rather than simply teaching the scriptures. You know, I was grief-stricken, and you know, there are stages to grief, and you, you have sadness, this depression, you have anger, you know, you have shock and denial, all these things, all these complex emotions and feelings I was feeling at the same time too, just trying to make sense of it all. But, you know, regardless of my feelings, here's the important question. Do those words of the early Christians line up with Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, and the lives and the teachings of the apostles? Well, clearly they do, right? Clearly they do. And what is more, uh, the, the more... I began to study this particular topic. I, I soon realized that the issue of non-resistance is one which the early church was completely united for the first 300 years of Christendom. They were completely united on this subject, despite facing intense persecution like no one in the American church faces. Let me just give you a few of those. Let me just give you three, okay, just for now. Here's Aristides in 125 AD. He says about Christians, they comfort their oppressors and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Here's Cyprian in 250 AD. He says, Christians do not attack their assailants in return. For it is not lawful for the innocent to kill even the guilty. The hand must not be spotted with the sword and blood, not after the Eucharist is carried in it. Notice he said, a Christian cannot kill if you've just taken the Lord's Supper. Here's Lactantius in 304 through 313. Okay. He says, religion is to be defended, not by putting to death, but rather by dying. Not by cruelty, but by patient endurance. Not by guilt, but by good faith. For the former belongs to evil, but the latter to good. For if you wish to defend religion by bloodshed, by tortures and guilt, it will no longer be defended. Rather, it will be polluted and profaned. And you know, we, honestly, we, we, we could spend an hour just reading quotes like this, especially like getting the full context of these. And Maybe we'll do some of that in a later podcast. Um, it'd be a little bit overwhelming, but um, maybe it's worth it. I don't know. Well, I do know that um, what they are saying, what these early Christians are saying, is not usually compatible with what is taught from American pulpits. Um, and like I said, when I read their words, I mean, it, it really upset me. My world was getting turned upside down. But, you know, looking back, 
as painful as it was, I believe my world was actually starting to get turned right side up. And I realize it can be scary when our worldviews are shaken. But I want to encourage you today to not be afraid. For God is for you. He's not against you. And God does not give us a spirit of fear. So if you're feeling fear about the, well, like if I try to practice this, what could happen? That fear is not from God. That's not a holy fear. That's not from God. Also know that King Jesus has not come to turn your world upside down, but to turn things right side up again. And remember the encouraging words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-4. through 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So, that's a little peek into uh, what began my journey into the early Christian writings. And we're going to be talking about a lot of different subjects, um, all, all kinds of biblical subjects uh, in, in the upcoming we, uh, weeks and months and hopefully years. And as we do... Um, if you're interested in hearing what the early Christians believed about a particular topic that interests you, please send me an email. Um, you can write me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. That's E-M-A-I-L-P-H-I-L-S-B-A-K-E-R, the at sign, G-M-A-I-L dot C-O-M, Okay. Yeah, and I can't promise that I'm going to get right to it because I got a lot of things planned already, but I, I'll do my best to get to it uh, eventually. And uh, you can dialogue with me also at that email for now. Um, yeah, so you can check out this podcast. It's on um, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com. Um, and uh, you can find it on iTunes too. If this has been a blessing to you, uh, it would really help me out if you would leave a rating and review on iTunes. And I just really want to encourage you to be a mighty warrior for the kingdom of God and fight spiritual battles with the spiritual weapons he gives you. And may you read the scriptures seriously and simply and believe with your whole heart that if Jesus and the apostles taught it and lived it, so can you. And just finally, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you. Style.
sun here is still I wait for you Walking in this wilderness My heart groans in bitterness When I forget your tenderness just like I often do it's what I deserve what I deserve no it's not what I've received no no what you deserve what for us the price of our deliverance who gives their life for criminals no one no one but you what I deserve what I deserve it's not what 